0: Hello, everyone. Before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr. Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But The main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast. And that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal potcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr Neil Buttery.
1: Selling a little or a lot? because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com/work. shopify.com/work. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness.
0: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's Bombus.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
1: Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Episode 5, Building a New World. Last week then, we discussed the basic story of the migrations and some of the evidence. I need to give you the obligatory health warnings. It was just one reading. There are many I have no doubt that would disagree and slaughter me, slaughter me with evidence. And who knows what the story will be in a few years' time. This week... Let's talk more about who these Anglo-Saxons were and what they were like, about how the settlements unfold, the tribes and kingdoms that emerge from the soup, and how societies begin to be structured during the 6th and 7th centuries. And then next time, we can get more political and start to look at the early Anglo-Saxon states and their wranglings. So what were they like, these Germanic invaders? First of all, they were, of course, pagans. Sadly, we know far less about Anglo-Saxon beliefs than we do about Norse. We don't have anything like the superb survivals of the sagas, but it's highly likely that there's a very close relationship between the Norse and Germanic pantheon of gods. And of course, both of them were resolutely polytheistic. We know about some of the gods in the Anglo-Saxon pantheon. The most important was Woden. Most important because in their genealogies, this is the god from whom most of the kings claim descent. It is Woden, of course, that we get the day of the week, Wednesday, from. In Norse mythology, his equivalent Odin was often referred to as Grimir, the Masked One, and this carries over into the Anglo-Saxon world, so that although we don't have any direct textual references, we have survivals such as Grimm's Dyke and Grimes' Graves. Then there was Thunor, the thunder god, equivalent with Thor, from whom we get Thursday, and many place names such as Thursley and Thundersfield. He appears to have been the most widely honoured of the gods, since he's left most evidence of the shrines and religious sites. And then Chu, the war god, whence Tuesday. Then there is Frigg, the goddess of fertility, whence our name for Friday. We know something of Anglo-Saxon gods from Bede, as it happens, mainly because he lists and names the months of the year. So the heathen year started on the 25th of December and was followed by a ceremony called Modronect, the Night of the Mothers. The last month of the old year and the first month of the new year were collectively called Juili, which is cognate with Yule. The second month was Solmonath described as the month of cakes, or alternatively, maybe the month of mud, depending on who you speak to. But at very least, it appears that in February-ish, the Anglo-Saxons broke out the buns. And in my experience, every day is a good day to break out the buns. Third and fourth months were named after goddesses attested nowhere other than in Bede, Haritha and Aostra. Although Eostra has been linked with Aurora, the goddess of the dawn, this is where we get our word for Easter from. Not quite sure how I ended up telling you about all the Anglo-Saxon months of the year, but I'm committed now, so onward. The fifth month was Trimikli, because at this time of year, cows were being milked three times a day. Gosh, so that's logical, Trimikli. Sixth and seventh month were brought together into one called Litha, Something to do with the moon, possibly, though, call me Mr Thickey. We know no more than that, sadly, as far as the Anglo-Saxons were concerned. But I understand these days, it's what some people call the summer solstice. Eighth month was called Weodmonath, the month of weeds. Now, I recognise that. And as I write, on the 2nd of August, as it happens, I have just spent three despairing hours trying to see if my allotment still exists under the carpet of weeds which now covers it. The ninth month is Halegmonath, Monath, or the month of offerings, so plainly a month entailing pagan festivals, in all likelihood to celebrate the end of harvest. Almost there then. So, Wintirfilith is identified as being connected with the appearance of the first full moon of the winter. The most interesting one, I think, is Blotmonath, or Blood Month, because it's the month where the animals were sacrificed ahead of winter, the ones who couldn't be fed over winter. Although cattle in those days were substantially smaller than the animals we're used to today, it's unlikely all of the meat could have been stored, so the month would have been also accompanied by quite a round of feasting. So sorry that that was a bit of a list, but the lovely thing about all of that is the close connection with the turning of the seasons, rather than simply the connection with a bunch of pagan deities. So, back to pagan deities then. After Woden, Chu, Frigg and Thunor, we're pretty much at the end of the deities we know anything about. We know Eostra and Hretha exist, but don't know what they're about. And there's another, Ursi, who is apparently the Earth Mother. We don't know anything about the creation stories or festivals. We don't even know if Thunor had the same goats that Thor had. I hope he did. They're pretty much the most handy goats imaginable. And if anyone is out there thinking of a birthday present for me... Thor's goats would go down a storm. It's likely there were other beings that inhabited the spiritual world. Elves, male water sprites called Nikkor, and dragons. There's very little known about the cosmology, but there seem to have been seven worlds, very similar to Norse mythology, with Middengard being Earth, and a kind of heaven-like place called Njöksnawang, or place of contentment. There is then the word "would," a core part of the Anglo-Saxon philosophy. The word means fate, and from the word we get the modern word weird, though with a different meaning. In The Wanderer, a 10th century Anglo-Saxon poem, the phrase is, fate is inexorable. It cannot be influenced or changed. There is then a debate about when the word gains currency. Is it a pre-Christian or a post-Christian concept? because traditional paganism included the concept that by sacrifice and offerings, fate could be influenced, the gods could help. But not apparently for the Anglo-Saxons. If you're an Anglo-Saxon, you are at fate's mercy. We know very little about the social structure of these Germanic tribes from descriptions by Tacitus, and can guess at other things from later chronicles, though what's equally clear is that it's a society that quickly gains more structure through the following centuries and therefore it's important not to assume too much about what that says about the past. But one of the most fundamental changes of the 5th and 6th centuries is the structure of society, as the British adopt the habits and customs of the Anglo-Saxons and the new combined society changes. Romano-British society and law was built around the individual. Its government was built around territory, which was populated by those individuals, which was to be managed and governed, and for which purpose it had built up a complex hierarchy of offices performed on behalf of the state. Now Bede did not speak about Anglo-Saxon territories such as Mercia. He spoke about peoples, the Mercians. It might sound like a subtle and slightly irritating distinction, but it's important. This was a tribal society and one based on Germanic traditions. This means that in the early days of the migration, the critical units were the warband and the kinship group. In the first century, Tacitus wrote about the Germanic tribes, and he wrote about the tribal assembly, the thing. Life is a funny thing, and why the word for an assembly should end up as a word that means, well, anything, I don't know. But no doubt Kevin could tell us. In the assembly, all freemen had decision-making rights, even if the assembly was led by nobles and by people expert in the law. Tacitus also wrote about decisions being met by the clashing of spear against shield and this reinforces the point that this is a military society where freeman equals warrior or at least the right of a freeman to carry arms. This was the basic division of society between free and unfree, the free and the slave since slavery, like Roman Britain, was an integral part of society. The tribal assembly then was populated by the Freeman with the right to bear arms, or the churl in Old English. There's none of the negative association then, in the early days, that there is now with the word, i.e. churlish. The churl and his household formed the very basic unit of society. Churl also means husband, actually, and suggests that marriage was the crucial part of the process of acquiring the resources needed to set up a household. The Chell's household may very well include slaves, and Gildas remarked that many Britons gave themselves into the hands of the Saxons, becoming their slaves forever. In such a way, the agrarian workforce of Roman Britain became the rural population of Anglo-Saxon England. In Roman Britain, social structure had separated military and civilian functions. With the return of a tribal society, the old link between armed freemen and the land was re-established. The churl established his household, family and other dependents on a holding, which the family worked to maintain itself. Each of these households were linked together by the concept of kin, or coon in Old English. Interlinked and Intermarried Families The kinship group was a powerful ally in the success of each household. Your kin provided protection for the individual, gave support in the assembly. The law codes that emerged later show how deeply embedded the concept of kinship was within society, and it was your kin that you relied on to pursue a feud or pay the fine or guild to avoid it, or to provide oath helpers for you. The man without a kinship group to support him was vulnerable indeed. These tribal societies then were structured around warfare in the form of a warband. The warband followed a leader. The leader's success and attractiveness was driven by his generosity, an attribute of lordship that stays with us for a very, very long time. In Anglo-Saxon society, and indeed Germanic society, the leader is a ring-giver, piach giver. His status, the status of the warband he leads, was defined by his generosity, which was, of course, to a large degree defined by his success. The point is made nice and clearly in Beowulf. Schooled Skiaffing, often deprived his enemies, many tribes of men of their mead benches. He terrified his foes, yet he as a boy had been found as a waif. Fate made amends for that. He prospered under heaven, won praise and honour, until the men of every neighbouring tribe across the Wales Way were obliged to obey him and pay him tribute. So, nothing about peace, love, truth, and a win-win negotiated settlement there then. While we're on the military, early Anglo-Saxon warfare at this time was based around armies that were probably very small, at best a few hundred strong. A group of 30 warriors, for example, was described as a hero, an army. An Anglo-Saxon ship probably contained something around 50 to 60 warriors. The horse was a mode of transport rather than an integrated part of warfare, so the Anglo-Saxons were basically an infantry force. The weapons of choice were the spear, the shield and a long knife. The long knife is iconic. It's called the sax. It's the signature weapon and tool of the Anglo-Saxon, worn by many, men and women, for daily use more than warfare. In warfare, the more aristocratic might also use a sword, though these were buttock-clenchingly expensive, in one place equated to 120 oxen. And that, my friends, is more than a hill of beans. So the normal weapon of choice was the spear. There were different types of spear, a light spear for throwing at the massed ranks of the enemy, a heavier spear for stabbing and thrusting from behind a shield wall, and a spear with a hook, useful for pulling down the shield of the enemy to expose him to attack. There would also be some men armed with bows and slings. The typical early Anglo-Saxon battle plan then consisted of standing around 30 to 40 paces away from your enemy in a well-organised shield wall. You then chuck spears at the enemy and shout at them to try to make them run away, either by people running out of the ranks into no-man's land or throwing from the rear ranks. If that didn't work, then it was the push and shove of shield walls, the front rank pushing, the rear ranks trying to stab with their spears from behind. The war band was held together not by the impersonal military discipline of the Roman army, but by fierce devotion to the leader. There's a story we'll come to in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle which probably counts as the first written story in Old English. It's 757 and the king of Wessex has been discovered, surprised and killed by a rival claimant to the throne at the home of his fancy woman. So it's all over. There's no resurrecting the guy now. He has shuffled off the mortal coil, gone to meet his maker. He is as dead as a parrot. But his men find out and they rush over to the scene and a no-win situation emerges. The rival claimant and killer is a chap called Coonherd, and he really doesn't want to kill them. He offers them all kinds of riches and rewards to swap allegiance. So, these men have three choices. Option one, get themselves a new boss, plenty of cash, live happily ever after. Option two, gracefully retire from the scene, pleading a bad headache. Option three, attack a bunch of hairy blokes with big spears who outnumber them fatally. Well I know what I'd do but what they actually choose is option three. The prince offered them wealth and life and none of them would accept it but they all kept fighting until they all lay dead. So devotion and loyalty to the Lord was everything. The relationship between the Lord and his followers was one of interdependence, where the followers supported the Lord and in return the Lord provided protection and gifts. This then is the society that arrived in Britain. This new society that was emerging was profoundly different to the one it replaced, where the early Anglo-Saxon family had multiple social identities, as part of a kinship group, as part of a war band, managing the landscape and owning the land. Being part of an assembly. The British had to go through dramatic changes with the loss of their steep hierarchies, the loss of much of the technology of the Roman world, the money economy, professional classes, towns, officialdom. The big picture of the 6th and 7th century is essentially the return to a tribal society and from there the building of a new society as once again elites emerge among which kingship and kingdoms, and thereby the formation of the political structure of Anglo-Saxon England appears. There is more than one model about how this happens, and actually, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. Both of them probably happened at different places and different times throughout England. So let's consider two main models. Model number one is about the takeover of existing pre-invasion political structures and territories very much the model of what happened in Gaul. And after all, if you're an aggressive little blighter with a bunch of hairy spearsmen at your back, why bother going farm to farm to build up your empire? Why not march up to the palace where it exists, topple the existing governor, and take over his entire hood? Much quicker. Number two is about a brick-by-brick build-up of communities and the creeping introduction of hierarchies and elites, and therefore super-small polities. Slowly, these titchy little statelets get lumped together by the local strongman. And there's a process of consolidation until we get to the 8th century we recognise of seven kingdoms, the Heptarchy. The problem with theory number one, the takeover, is that, as we've seen, in the end, very little seems to survive of Roman Britain, unlike in Gaul. So much had collapsed already before the Anglo-Saxons started arriving in small numbers looking for a new life. But there is some survival. In the west of Britain and western England, it is certainly clear that many kingdoms or lordships survived with a very British character, and indeed these may well have kept going through the 6th century and into the 7th. So, for example, there are a number of small kingdoms in South Wales and in Herefordshire that were firmly based on the old Roman territorial divisions and named after Roman towns, probably British in character. There's the Chiltern Hills, Affluent commuter belt now, but for much of the 6th century very probably ignored by Anglo-Saxon settlers as a rather poor, infertile sort of place. The Kingdom of Lindsay, which is now broadly Lincolnshire, the Kingdom of Almut near Leeds, and Dyra and Bernicia in Northumbria all derive from Roman territorial divisions. And of course Devon and Cornwall were resolutely British, based on the old tribes of the Cornoyi and the Domnoni and Kent emerged, with its Roman name of Cantium, virtually unchanged. So there are some, but elsewhere little seems to survive. So the word is variety. New society emerges in many different ways. The landscape of place names gives a window into the second theory, the build-up, brick-by-brick, of small communities approach. Now, you may or may not know that if a place ends with I-N-G-ing, that means The people of. So, Reading, City of Dreams, originally meant the place inhabited by the people of Reader. Now, in Sussex, there's a group of 15 places which originally had Heistingers in their name, a group of community who all thought of themselves as Heister's people. There are other examples, such as a cluster of Rodingers in Essex. And so, this shows a profile of the Heisters and Roders of this world who carved out their little regions, their little proto-kingdoms. Now, here's an interesting fact. Of all the Anglo-Saxon men buried before 525, 40% were buried with a spear. From 525 to 625, that figure falls to 33%, and after 625, it falls still further to just 20%. What this means is not that war and the right to carry arms becomes culturally less important, but that through the 6th and 7th centuries, a society formed by migration begins to develop structures, hierarchies, inequalities, begins to put down its roots. A purely warrior class begins to emerge, and equally a peasant class emerges that doesn't have the right to carry arms. There's other evidence of hierarchy emerging a greater differentiation in the quality of graves, some with a range of rare and valuable grave goods and the appearance of costly child burials. I know it's a trend that gets stronger and stronger through the late 6th century and into the 7th. What had previously been a ranked society, where maybe a few churls had a little more than others, where the only obvious hierarchy might come from the war leader, this society developed into a structured hierarchical one. There were many ways in which the heisters of this world emerged. It could have been the violent takeover of other lords' communities, but it doesn't have to be. And in fact, maybe that's more the exception than the rule. The successful war leader might use the time-honoured approach of marrying well to bind different communities together. Maybe groups came together through a process of joint need and negotiating, pooling resources to take advantage of some opportunity or to face some kind of threat. Maybe they spread their influence through patronage and brought new communities into their growing fold. These lords of multiple communities needed to travel around to visit their various estates, and as they travelled, they began to demand to be looked after, to be fed and watered as they travelled arduously from village to village. They would then move on to another of their halls when the food and resources at one place was exhausted. That didn't necessarily mean that each hall was deserted when they weren't there. Someone had to manage the estate, and so appeared the all-powerful Reeve. And the Reeve would be accompanied, no doubt, by his own household and slaves. It equally made sense for the Reeve to prepare for the next visit of his lord by gathering and storing tribute and food from the communities around about. After all, no one wants to be caught with their pants down and with a bare cupboard when the lord arrived back in town. And so we see a new kind of settlement at places like Yeavering and Cowdery's Down, evidence of outside halls for storing resources more than would be needed immediately. Evidence of cattle raised elsewhere and driven long distances. Grain processed elsewhere and driven there by the wagon load to one centre. Essentially, these were tribute centres. Places where the communities in a wider area owing allegiance to the same lord brought part of their yearly produce. So we can then also associate tribute centres directly with grand settlements and great halls. So at a place called Higham Ferrers. There's a series of buildings that serviced a great hall just across the river Neen at a place called Urtlingborough. Higham Ferrers was surrounded by a large enclosure acting as a pen for livestock driven in by tribute payers. It had a ditch, probably topped by a thorn hedge. In the enclosure was accommodation for a small permanent workforce, with storage buildings, molting ovens, and a mill. In twenty fourteen. There was great excitement at the offices of the East Anglian Daily Times, a prestigious and leading part of the world community of journalism. A series of finds had been made near a place called Rendlesham. The place is mentioned by Bede himself as a royal village. The materials found included exquisite gold buckles, Saxon silver pennies and coins from the continent. The reason all this caused so much excitement was that the site was super close, in fact just five kilometres away from the most famous site of them all, Sutton Hoo. I'm kind of assuming that loads of you will know about Sutton Hoo, but just to make sure we're all on the same page. The story of Sutton Hoo isn't quite Howard Carter stuff, but it's pretty darn close. In 1939, Mrs Edith Pretty asked archaeologist Basil Brown to excavate a site on her land, which had multiple mounds. The site had been excavated before, a pit had been dug in the 16th century, and an extensive investigation made in 1860. Brown looked at what's called Mound 1, but it had been disturbed by the 16th century pit, so instead they started with three smaller mounds. They found some artefacts, but nothing major, so they turned back to the much bigger Mound 1 and what they found second time around, as war began to sweep over Europe, was the most extraordinary thing. They found the ghost outline of a large ship, 27 metres in length. They found exquisite artefacts. You can see them in the British Museum, and they're a must for anyone. Absolutely gorgeous clasps, executed in gold and garnet and enamel, a silver plate, all the way from Byzantium, gold Frankish coins, and of course, amongst other things, the remains of that iconic mask helmet. And in the boat was evidence of a burial, who may very well be a 7th century Anglian king called Riedwald. Sutton who transformed the view of the period, demonstrating that this was a society capable of creating high-quality craftsmanship, with much wider links to the outside world than previously supposed. Its relevance here is the connection of the sumptuous burial site with the royal palace at Rendlesham. As the 6th century closed and the 7th century progressed, there were many other examples of high-status burials that speak to the growth of a structured hierarchical society, and with it the appearance of not just local lords, but leaders describing themselves as kings. Now, in about the year 1000, someone copied a manuscript which was already something like three to four hundred years old. It was an ancient list of tribute payments, probably constructed by a king of the Mercians. It's called the Tribal Hideage, and it's a unique and startling survival, unlike any other document we have from the period. As a list of tribute payments, it helpfully records a bunch of what looks like tribes, and records the amount of land they hold in hides, and you will, of course, hopefully remember that a hide is the amount of land needed to maintain a family for a year. The largest of the tribes on the list are the West Saxons, and they have a 100,000 hides. And we suspect there's a bit of jiggery-pokery gone on there, since it's unlikely they were so much bigger than the Mercians. The Mercians were allocated epoxy 30,000 hides. But spare a thought for the Wicca, who just get 300 hides or the Elmett Citer with 600. Now, at this point, you get a flavour of the joy and delight of Dark Age history. Because I am telling you, more ink has been spilt over the highball tridage than you can shake a stick at, where you give them to shaking sticks. People have opined that these are just administrative units. They've played parlour games to decide where they came from. But it seems quite possible that what we have here is a record or memory of the groups that grew up over the 6th and 7th centuries, slowly spreading out over the plains and up the river valleys of England. Collections of kinship groups forming together under the leadership of a war leader, whose descendants would one day look back at them and describe them as kings. It's a lovely document. Hop along to the website and have a look. It shows that those heisters had in some way come together and themselves now owed allegiance to someone higher up a new food chain. At some point from the early 7th century, some of the more successful leaders of these tribes started to call themselves kings, a word that is rooted in Germanic rather than Roman traditions. The Old English word for king is kuning and is connected with the word for kin, kun. It's clear from Bede's narrative and from the tribal hydage that some kings were more equal than others. So many of these kinglets, like the uh, Hawissa of Western England, were at best client kings of the local big beast, in this case, Mighty Mercia. The descendants of Stothan Whitgar on the Isle of Wight, the Whitgara, were pretty soon under the control and influence of the West Saxon kings. And it's not necessary for this to have been a violent process. In many cases, these sub-kings may have gone to more powerful rulers for protection, accepting their leadership and continuing to hold the status as a king, but recognising their more powerful neighbour's overlordship. One famous Mercian king, Pender, created a kingdom for his son by bringing together several Fenland peoples into one kingdom. In this way, kingdoms were formed as tribal communities met and negotiated and intermarried and fought. There's probably also a multiplier effect that took hold as time went by. As tribal communities came together into petty kingdoms, consolidation came more quickly. More powerful kings now took into their control whole swathes of territory at a time, as they gobbled up a people like the Huys or the Chilternsaiter. Which brings us to the classic structure of mid-Anglo-Saxon England at the time of the Christian conversion, the seven kingdoms known as the Heptarchy. So next time then let's take this story further and look at the emerging political history of anglo-saxon england about how the heptarchy formed its politics and traditions how a world of pagan tribal leaders turned itself into a world of christian kings and finally we'll meet cherditch with whom my original story started and so thanks to all of you who have left comments on the website itunes facebook and so on and of course thanks to all of you for listening Good luck, everyone, and have a great week.
0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer.